If I ask you to picture Batman, who comes to mind? I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. At this point in time, a lot of actors have donned the cape and cowl. Batman has been on screen since 1943. Maybe you grew up with Adam West in the 1960s or Michael Keaton in the 1990s. Your definitive Batman might be George Clooney, Val Kilmer, or Christian Bale. How do you feel about Ben Affleck or Robert Pattinson? And these are just some of the live action Batman Maybe the voice performances of Kevin Conroy or Will Arnett are actually your favorite portrayals of the caped crusader. So how do you cast for such an iconic character for the screen, especially for the third or fourth or 10th time? Here's Dara Jaffe, co-curator of the Academy Museum's Performance Gallery, talking about just that. We were considering at one point doing an entire case study on a character like Batman, who's been cast in so many different projects as so many different actors, and looking at how casting directors approach a role that is so famous, either because it's, you know, it's coming from a franchise like a comic book where it's already captured the public imagination. These characters are already considered beloved. So, you know, the the immense pressure to cast someone who can kind of meet the expectations of someone who already feels very personally attached to these characters. In this episode, Casting Batman. We'll hear from former executive vice president of casting at Warner Brothers, Laura Kennedy, about the challenges of casting a comic book icon. And later on, a look into the casting of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy with his longtime collaborator, casting director John Papsidera. The pressure of casting a character like Batman is no joke. Audience reactions can be swift and harsh. I do remember the, the town's reaction to Michael Keaton was, what the hell is this, you know? This is Laura Kennedy. You heard from her in episode three. She didn't cast Michael Keaton, but she took over the executive VP of casting position at Warner Brothers for Marion Doherty in 1999. And he proved everybody wrong. When people have preconceived ideas about something and you're, and you're close to it and you go, no, 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 just give it a chance. Let's like let it breathe and you guys will see what'll happen. The initial audience reaction often doesn't actually have anything to do with how good or bad the actor might be or how beloved their interpretation could end up being. Nowadays, when you cast somebody and there's such an immediate reaction on social media that the actors don't even get the time to get into the character, to put the suit on, to feel like, see what they can do with it before it's already been judged and decisions have been made. And it's like, you guys don't even know yet. There's that space in between the kind of the announcement and then when the film actually comes out, you're totally right. And you don't really know what the director is going for, what aspect of the character that they're trying to show. So we're not even giving people a chance before they're condemned. Laura saw this happen recently, too, with the initial internet grumble around the casting of Ben Affleck. I actually cast Justice League and actually I'd cast the town for Ben and I'd cast 
Argo for Ben. And then it was just weird. Then Ben ends up being Batman. And I was really angry at the people that were coming down on Ben. And once again, it's like, how do you even know? Just give him a chance to breathe into this character. Give him a chance to put the suit on. Give him a chance to breathe in it a bit before you condemn it. And I think he was, and I think people really realized he was very good. So we asked Laura while we had her here, who's her favorite Batman? Well, I'm partial to Christian and Ben. I'm very proud of the work that both of them did. But there was something about Christian that I found, I always kind of felt that he came into his own when he was Batman. Christian Bale led the critically acclaimed and Academy Award-nominated Dark Knight trilogy in the 2000s. That series marked a turning point in comic book movies and in portrayals of Batman on screen. Before that, the last Batman film was Joel Schumacher's 1997 release, Batman and Robin, starring George Clooney. Who invited you? I was just hanging around. I thought you were going to stay in the museum, round up some thugs. How about nice to see you? Glad you're here to save my life. The Schumacher Batman films are campy, colorful, and over-the-top. Contrast that with the world Christopher Nolan built in 2005. Master Wayne, are you coming back for long, sir? As long as it takes to show the people of Gotham their city doesn't belong to the criminals and the corrupt. It's a significant amount of time, and I wonder what your conversations were like just in terms of what audiences would be expecting from a new iteration of Batman at that moment. Were you discussing sort of, you know, kind of how the world had changed between those two films? Yeah. Um, You know, we did talk about that. And, you know, Chris's vision of it was always just much more darker and real and grounded than, you know, those fun kind of movies. He wanted to have a real dialogue, I think, with the audience about right and wrong and and justice and the society being out of control and how this one person's mission was to try and set things right. This is John Papsidera, a casting director who's been working with Christopher Nolan since his first film, Memento. It was a fascinating time and a really exciting time uh, to try and create something that was brand new in the genre. After the break, we continue talking with John about his career connecting with Christopher Nolan, and the process of casting the Christian Bale Batman. My name is John Papsidera, and I am a casting director. John, how did you first get into casting? Oh boy, this is going to take a long time to explain, Jacqueline. I had trained to be an actor, and uh, I had gone to undergraduate school and then a uh, professional actor training program Circle in the Square in New York for postgraduate studies. And I got out and I went to one of my first on-camera auditions, which was a Diet Pepsi commercial that was a takeoff of the original Top Gun. So that is aging me, but there it is. And I remember leaving that audition and being so self-conscious of being on camera. They had five cameras around me. I thought, 
I can't do this. I was successful in another realm of running restaurants for kind of celebrity chefs in New York. And I started to think about what did I want to do? And long story short, I moved to Los Angeles. I opened up a bunch of other restaurants and I felt no matter how successful I was in that realm, that when I met people and said, oh, I'm a general manager of a restaurant, they pictured me with a McDonald's hat on my head. And I felt that because I know, and I knew that I'd walked away from my dream. I talked to a friend that was in casting. I met with a few casting directors, David Rubin, who used to be the president of the Academy. I went and spoke to another casting director that suggested I meet Stanley Sobel at the Mark Taper Forum, which I did. And Stanley offered me an internship. And so I gave notice to my restaurant jobs and uh, and started in casting at the Taper. And so I was able to work at the Mark Taper Forum in theater in casting and worked on things like the workshop production of Angels in America and Jelly's Last Jam and a lot of great theater. And that started my journey into casting. I wonder if you could talk a bit about your casting philosophy. Like what are some of the central kind of, you know, guiding principles that you have in terms of how you approach your discipline? I think a lot of it on some level comes down to dramaturgy. I think it's about interpreting material. And I really feel like my job is to match what is two-dimensional on a page to something that is three-dimensional and a person's soul. So I'm really matching souls to something that I read and kind of interpret a certain way through clues in the, in the script, whether it be a character's reaction to another one, whether it be an insight of what he says. It's about breaking that down and finding those hidden clues. And then in the lexicon of actors that I have in my head and or have the um, privilege to know over years and new people that I get to meet, it's about joining those two things. Like, I see this in that person, and that fits that jigsaw puzzle piece of that character. And sometimes it's humor, sometimes it's a quirk, sometimes it's intelligence, um, mostly intelligence. You know, I find that intelligent actors usually have a lot going on behind their eyes. And the camera finds those things. So I think that's really my, my philosophy is trying to find the best actors for roles. And that starts with how I interpret that character on a page. And then what's the process like for you as you start to put together your concept of the role with the material presence of the actor? Like, when do you know that it's going well? Or when do you sense that it's maybe not the right choice? I mean, it's usually a long conversation with the director, with the producers, with the studio, because it's an incredibly collaborative process. And everybody in the world thinks they're a casting director. From every assistant on a production to your neighbor, people are like, oh, you know who would have been good in that role? It's a distilling process to some degree. You start with conversations. After I read a script, I will um, make lists for characters and then discuss those with the director, who they like, who they don't like, how they see it. And through distilling this process down and down, 
you actually get to something that's, you know, very refined at the end. You know, you start in a macro and you end up in a micro. And through that process, through availability, through auditions, through watching materials, all those things, those characters start to come to light. Let's talk about your collaborations with Christopher Nolan. When did you first start working with him? I had done Austin Powers, the original one. And those producers were uh, Suzanne and Jennifer Todd, uh, who have remained career-long friends. And uh, having finished Austin Powers, they called me a short time afterwards and said, you know, we have this little movie by a director, um, hasn't really done anything here in the States. Would you read it? It's called Memento, and his name is Christopher Nolan. I guess I've already told you about my condition. Funny every time I see you. You don't remember where you've been or what you've just done. I can't make new memories. Everything just fades. I read the script. Then I had to read the script again, and then I had to read it a third time, and uh, and I was kind of blown away by by the structure, by the creativity, by the singularity of the voice and the vision. And so I called them and said, uh, "I don't know if I'm smart enough to work on this film, but I absolutely loved it and would love to be involved." And you know, in hindsight now it was probably one of the easiest casting jobs because Chris was gracious enough, as was Emma, Thomas, his wife, to say, show us the best people. Show us who you like for these roles. And so I brought in people that I thought were really great. And Chris was amazing at kind of signing off and saying, yeah, I like them too. Now, you know, that kind of shorthand, it started very early in that. And the trust that he gave to me is not common, you know, and yet we started that relationship and have continued it to this day, gratefully. Would you say there's any film in particular that really has been the most exciting for you to work on in terms of your collaboration with Christopher? I mean, I think all of them pose really amazing possibilities. You know, Memento was special because of the uniqueness of that film. Obviously, the Batman series was incredibly special. I mean, to get an opportunity to work on such an iconic character and redefine what that genre was to some degree with an amazing creator and director and storyteller was, you know, a life's dream. I mean, it's just remarkable, a remarkable body of work. And uh, I'd love to talk with you more about Batman. Our curators at the Academy Museum, who curate our gallery on performance, have been really interested in the history of casting Batman. And I just wonder, from your point of view, how is it different? Like, is it fundamentally different when you're casting for a pre-existing character, let alone an iconic character, than it is for, you know, casting an original character? It is different because everybody that comes to it actors, agents, managers, producers, you they all have a preconceived notion of what that character is. Whether it's a visual, whether it is a energy, whatever those preconceived notions are, they come with those prejudices. So especially when you're trying to redefine a character, it can be difficult. It can be tricky because people will will have a 
well-rooted opinion. After the break, we continue talking with John Papsidera. fascinating is that, you know, some of those opinions started when they were kids reading comic books in this case, you know, and how they think about uh, Batman. And there's a sentimental, really deep, some emotional attachment to that image. Absolutely. Right. When we started Batman Begins, you know, there was a lot to break through of where the Batman series had come before that, because this was a different version of those films. And um, it wasn't the Joel Schumacher versions. I want a car. Chicks dig the car. This is why Superman works alone. It wasn't that much of a twinkle in the eye and, you know, and larger than life characters. I think the trick to it is being able to play larger than life, but to have it still really grounded and real. And, you know, and that's the world that Chris created in the Batman trilogy that we did. I've seen now what I have to become to stop men like him. The night is darkest just before the dawn. And I promise you, the dawn is coming. And here we go. You know, we talked to David Rubin, and one of the really interesting things he said is that when he's looking at a script, he tries not to pay attention to the physical description of the character, but to think about, you know, the many facets of what that character represents and experiences. And I wonder, like for a character that people have visualized, Batman has been a part of visual culture for a long time. How much were like physical specifications part of your conversations with Christopher? A a lot. You know, there's a, a fair amount of it. You know, I mean, I think also, which is interesting, that when we started out, I think, you know, it was right after the time that kind of uh, Spider-Man had been reinvented in with the uh, Tobey Maguire version of it. And I think there was a sense between us that we were telling an origin story, right? Because it starts that place, in that place. And it was about him becoming Batman discovering, you know, the Batmobile for the first time and his toys and his tricks and all that kind of stuff. And so I think initially we had all felt that it was a little bit younger, possibly, and a little bit more wide-eyed once we did screen tests. And, you know, that was interesting as, as well. We had to test actors in the mask because Chris wanted to make sure that whoever we chose could act through the mask, that it wouldn't just stop the performance at this headpiece that they put on. It's a fascinating thing to kind of look back on now and what Christian was able to do that, you know, led to that decision. Yeah. And I guess the screen test component of that is essential, right? It's not just what gets conveyed maybe in an in-person interaction. Yeah, I think, I think so, you know, because look, at the end of the day, that's the medium that we're casting for. And I think directors and producers can get a little caught up on the fact that I need to be in the room, I need to feel it with actors. And that provides you with a certain amount of information, probably more of a 
working relationship than anything else. But really, what you want to see is what, what happens on the screen and what happens with an actor in front of the camera. You know, it's all those things about being able to hold the camera's gaze. You know, it's about confidence. It's about how they react to something. It's about how you're watching them go through those motions that, uh, that ultimately is what you, where the gold is. Yeah. Yeah. So could you take us back to sort of the process for coming to Christian Bale as the, as the one who got the role? How did that evolve? You know, we tested uh, Christian. We tested uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. We tested Killian Murphy. We tested uh, Ian Bailey. And we tested Josh Jackson. And all of those guys had different strengths and weaknesses. We were in that thought that this is an origin story. And it wasn't until we screen tested them and then watched it in the theater with the studio that it came up with the structure of the script did not necessarily allow that growth that we had thought could happen because he fights Raja Ghul right out of the gate. And so it had to be a man, not a boy. And all things pointed to Christian. He was an absolute pro watching those screen tests. Christian was like a Swiss watch. He knew where the camera was. He knew how to work the camera. His professionalism and his experience just rocketed in those screen tests. And once we married that idea that he needs to be a fully grown man, able to fight this battle at the beginning of the movie, it was, there was no doubt in our minds that it was Christian. Wow. Wow. Are there ways that working on these projects that you feel they impacted your approach, your career? I think, you know, that idea of having heightened performances, but still grounded was, you know, it's almost like walking and chewing gum at the same time for actors. Again, it takes an actor that understands dramaturgy and how to interpret that script and that character in the right tone. I tend to, you know, be drawn to very smart actors that can kind of decipher that and perform it. But um, I think it's influenced me in the sense that you want people that can walk, chew gum, and skip all at once <laughs> if need be. That's a tall order. That's a tall it is, order. It is, it is, you know, rarefied air. So generally speaking, what would you say is the role the casting plays in filmmaking? Like what, what significance would you attach to that role? <laughs> I'm infamous for um, spouting off about this. To me, I think it's, it's essential. It's probably the most essential aspect in my mind. Without an actor, without a character, you have no film, have no show, have nothing. These are the people that are interpreting what you wrote and bringing it to life. So when producers or directors say, well, we don't really have time for this. We're on a location scout. I'll be the first one to spout up. You know, forget about a location if you don't have an actor to put on it. Forget about wardrobe if you don't have somebody to wear it. Forget about all makeup if you don't have an actor's face. So for me, it's essential and the most basic of um, steps and creative process is deciding on who's going to tell your story. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved what you said earlier about how everyone thinks they're an expert in casting, including 
<laughs> your neighbor. Um, what what do you think people's perceptions are about casting and the casting process? For the most part, people don't understand that every person that speaks on screen, and for Chris, some people that don't speak on screen, are my responsibility. And through that same creative process of coming up with lists, reading actors, showing them to a director, having conversations about it, um, having callbacks, negotiating their deal, um, is all under my purview. And so it's a huge job. And again, I think one of the most essential beyond the director and the writer and, uh, and the DP, you know, to, in making a project. So to your mind, what is successful casting? For me, it's casting that's seamless, that doesn't pull you out of moments, that doesn't jar you into, oh, who are they going to show me next? But I think it's about being able to buy into those characters in the reality of the situation seamlessly without getting distracted, either by bad acting or a surprise face that you didn't know was going to turn up. It's about that kind of, I want to go into a darkened room and lose myself in what I'm watching and not be distracted by the outside world or the real world while I'm in this imagined one. Are there things that you would like to see evolve in the discipline of casting? I'd like to see casting directors get more respect, um, get more credit for their participation in the creative process, that you know people actually pursue their career, that the career is validated and valued. I mean, I'm from Florida. I could be digging ditches somewhere, you know. Um, so the fact that I've been allowed to have a career as great as I feel the experience has been for me is a, is a true honor. And, you know, I don't reflect on it much, but it's been an emotional journey when I think about it. Wow. And you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how your work across the board, but on the Batman films in particular, how they can be really inspirational to people who might be thinking about this as a as a career. I mean, so many of the colleagues that we've spoken with have come into casting sort of, you know, it hasn't been a direct path. It's not like it's a career that people who might be interested in entering the industry necessarily think of first. <laughs> and your story echoes that. But the the debate, even the controversies around casting a role like Batman actually give visibility to the fact that this is a creative process, I, I would think. Yeah, I, I would hope so. It's a lovely way that you put it, Jacqueline, in that. I think what appealed to me about it was that it was this mix of creativity, working with artists and business that was incredibly fulfilling on all three fronts. It's not just one thing. It is um, coming up with ideas. It's about working with somebody and finding common ground. It's about gaining support for ideas and then seeing it through. You know, you're an essential piece. It's almost an embarrassment of riches in some ways. That's wonderful. This has been amazing. Your insights are just incredible. Thank you. That's very sweet of you to say. That is it for this episode of the Academy Museum Podcast, Close Up on Casting. 
Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie making. The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is the vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias director of content development. This episode was produced and edited by Victoria Alejandro. Our other producer is Monica Bushman. Antonia Sarahito is our senior producer and story editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, elias.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery. And to one of our inaugural assistant curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the performance gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of Elias Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. 